Uh, while, they are, while they are lining up, um, getting ready to go, um, we are in the middle of our uh, summer psalm series. We have started this summer preaching through the psalms. We're going sequentially uh, from one all the way on through, uh, wherever that may take us. And I have uh, greatly enjoyed um, this so far, listening to Charles preach, listening to Adam preach last week, have uh, greatly benefited from these and excited to jump in with you guys for the next few weeks uh, here as well. So... Uh, Let's go straight to our psalm this morning, psalm number 6. I'll read it, uh, and then we'll start with a word of prayer. This is God's word. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you meet us here this morning? Uh, You who sees into our hearts, you know where we need you and you know where we are far off. Uh, Would you give us your joy? Would you give us encouragement? Uh, Would you give us a sense of fearlessness uh, to look at what you want us to see? Um, but would you powerfully send your spirit and work in us so that we would, we would all together see the great hope uh, that you have given us in Jesus because of your steadfast love and that that would be characterized, that would be, would be what characterizes us as we go out of here today. Uh, we put this in your hands and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a few words of introduction as you read this psalm this morning. Um, we have another lament Uh, before us uh, we're going to look at. I did just a quick Google of it, and the first thing that came up was that about 70% of the psalms are laments, and approximately 0% of the songs that are commonly sung in church are laments. Um, So one of the effects of that, I think, is that we're going to see a lot of these, um, and there might be some repeated themes as we walk our way through the psalms. But everyone is slightly different. And one of the things that uh, we're going to see this morning that this allows us to do is that there are are certain situations that we might find ourselves in uh, that psalms like this gives us words and tools uh, to be able to walk through and to be able to deal with in particular ways. And even if it's not our personal situation that we're in, we are all part of a body. Uh, You'll see in the, if you look in your Bible, the introduction to this psalm says that this is uh, David is the psalm of David, and he is writing this for congregational singing. That even though this is in the first person, the voice of one person, that this is for a whole congregation. Uh, so there might be many in the room um, even now that this is a direct, as a direct application. Um, and we all bear that together, and we all build each other up together. Uh, but you'll see there are a few curious things in here. We see David who's lamenting of his own sin. He's looking at, at the Lord to rebuke him not in his anger. We see enemies in here. We see a deep depression. 
Um, and there's a lot of things that this could mean. Um, if you've ever been depressed, um, then you know how that sense of depression can highlight all kinds of issues. It can feel like God is very angry with us. It can, we can feel very vulnerable even before other people. Um, it could be that the enemies in play here are actually reminding David of his own um, sense of sinfulness. Um, what I'm going to take this is the most common way that interpreters take it is that this is a penitential psalm and that this is a psalm where David is dealing with the sin before God. And there are always people around um, who have the potential to profit um, off of um, those that are down and out in some ways. But even taking it as that is the case, and all of these options of how we can look at it, I think it highlights something that is very basic. And that is that sin actually hurts us too. It doesn't just hurt God, it doesn't just hurt other people, but there are unintended consequences uh, that we often don't think about that brings hurt back onto us as well. And that this is actually a way that we can deal um, with the hurt uh, with sin. I'll give you an illustration. My wife, my, uh, Lauren, um, uh, reminded me of this week. Um, she's from South Carolina and is a curious reader. Um, and so we were talking about this. Have you ever heard of the submarine, the Hunley? There is a Civil War submarine that was sunk off of the coast of South Carolina. It was one of the first submarines used in battle. Um, and it is bizarre and fantastic all at the same time. How this submarine worked is it was completely man-powered. They were two rows, people sit side by side, and they would crank this crank up and down. So it's like underwater bumper boats. Um, that you're, They're just sitting there, they're cranking it like this in order to go anywhere. And there were no projectile weapons. How they did it, there was a long rod on the end of the submarine in which they attached a bomb to the end of the rod And they cranked up to the ship, hoping, calculating that the rod was actually long enough that they could ram it and detonate the bomb and sink the ship and crank and get away as fast as they could. I'm getting excited up here. (laughs) I just want to see in the boardroom when this idea was proposed, (laughs) who would volunteer to go on this ship? Uh, But the fascinating thing about the Hunley is that apparently... It worked. That it sunk the ship, and when they found the remains, the entire ship was intact. It was not destroyed by the bomb, and everybody was sitting in their position as if nothing was happened, nothing had happened, except they had somehow sunk and were on the bottom of the ocean. And this has been a mystery for a long time until recently, they've actually figured out that while some of the calculations were correct, in that they were not actually affected by the direct blast of the bomb. That the shock waves from the bomb actually knocked everybody out and sucked all of the air out so that they could not get away. And so everybody was perfectly preserved. And this is just an illustration of how sin works. Like we've, even in the insanity of our minds, we, we think that this is gonna, I think I can do this, and it is going to work out well. We can devise plans and get away with it. But always, there are unintended consequences that we don't first pick up on that end up being hurtful to ourselves. 
And I think if you've ever been in here, then you can immediately go and know what this is. We never think about the guilt that comes. We never think about the waves of shame that comes every time somebody else mentions whatever that sin is and and it prompts a memory in our mind that causes us to go back there and think of it all over again. Uh, We don't think about the way that broken trust in relationships lasts for a long time. And even after apologies and making amends, that the consequences linger and they still hurt. We don't think about the ways that we can end it, that people can talk and there is social embarrassment and even um, exclusion and being ostracized from people as the effect of our sin. Sin hurts us too. And it is often ways that we don't expect. And one of the good things about having Psalms like this in the Bible is that for people, when we know that we have screwed up, We know that it is our fault, and we are hurting because of stuff that we have done. The Bible actually gives us ways to deal with, not just the penalty of our sin, which is taken up on the cross in Jesus, but also the experience of the hurt of our sin as well. And let me say just a few things before we move on. There are some things I'm not going to touch on as much. I'm not going to talk about confession very much. We'll, t- we'll touch on that at the end. And that just uh, what it is like of setting us free um, from sin when we actually confess and we actually seek repentance. I think the thing that this psalm is actually leading us to is more of the experience and the fallout of uh, the hurtfulness uh, that we linger and continue. So I'm, I'm talking specifically about that. I know there are some in this room who probably have um, very sensitive and guilty consciences. Um, And I want us to be aware of that as well. Um, There are all kinds of ways we might want to take um, even things that other people have done upon ourselves and to to kind of navel gaze and see us us as the problem. I'm going to address that as well. Um, But I just, I want us to be able to think about this specifically, that this is given to specific situations when we know that we have messed up and we know that there are consequences Um, And it might be you. You might be there. You might be experiencing these. Um, You are certainly in a community uh, of people. um, And there might be a day coming uh, when this will be um, uh, particularly relevant. So keep those in mind as just perspective as we go through here. I'm going to use the metaphor as a journey here. um, Three points. uh, Because this is what the Psalms do. I've used the, the analogy before. They're like rubber bands. It's like you latch one end around our circumstances. It relates to us where we are. And we latch another way, another end around God and who he is and his character. And they're pulling us. It's like it's taking us on a journey. It's shaping us. Not just giving words to how we feel, but it's leading us in a process of how to deal with these things um, before our Father. So the journey is going to look like this. And I'm just taking um, the, the psalms in the, the person. Uh, first, we're going to start at the source of the hurt. As this first section of the psalm, 1 through 5, uh, the words are directed are given directly to God. Uh, then second, we are going to go right through the source, right through the depth of the hurt. In the second point, verses 6 and 7, um, as the voice turns and the speaker speaks about himself. And then in the end, when it shifts to speaking about enemies, uh, and then we are going to talk about this, the new 
opportunity to move forward with confidence, um, even despite the sin that we have. Okay? So the start of the source of the problem. Uh, we're led there by David as he is giving us these words as a model for um, how to deal with the hurt of our own sin. And just see, it, this might seem like a throwaway point in the beginning, but uh, where does David start us? It goes straight to, oh Lord. It directs um, the issue directly at God. In five times in the first five verses, he's speaking directly at God saying, oh Lord. And I don't think that is actually um, just a small throwaway point because there are other options here of where to start. Uh, he could have been started with himself in frustration with himself um, in, in just kicking himself for what, for what he has done. He could have started at the enemies and said, it's their fault. It is ultimately their fault why I'm here. But he doesn't do that. He actually starts directly by talking to God. As that there is something about the source of the issue that is at play that is directly related to God himself. And why is that? Why might he be leading us to start with God as the source? And I think the second thing that is emphasized here are these words um, that we might not like. But he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. In English, these actually move those words, anger and wrath, to the end when they actually, they come up first. Right after, O Lord, in anger, don't discipline me. It's making them emphatic. It's emphasizing that point. And what David wants us to see here is when we turn and start at the source and recognize that the the life that we are living is first and foremost lived out before God, that God is so invested in his world and in his people and in me and in you, that hurt to his world is actually hurt to him too. He is not far away observing he is intimately involved. And we have to recognize that the source of our hurt is in a large way actually the hurt that God feels too. He doesn't like things to hurt. He likes things to be just and to be good and to be right. And so when we break his world, when we harm other people, when we harm ourselves, there is actually a hurt that we are bringing before God as well, and that he has a right to be angry about. And so what we're being shaped here is to remember that all of these things that we experience, the hurt that we feel, it is not something that is just to do with us, that it is actually um, to do with God as well. And why might this be important? Because if we misdiagnose where to start, uh, we are going to misdiagnose the nature of the world and also the solution as well. One of the fundamental things about living in a world of which God is the source, if it is a world that he made and that he is intimately involved in, that we cannot expect to willfully misuse it and walk in sin and that there won't be consequences. It's one of those myths that we like to tell ourselves, that this is something that is just me, is not going to harm anybody else with me. But that is not how world made by God actually works. We cannot expect to willfully misuse it and there not be consequences in some way. But beyond that, if we're not looking to coming to God as the source of even the solution to this problem, then what are we left with? 
we're left with those thoughts that, well, maybe if I cry enough, maybe if I feel bad enough, if I deprive myself, then maybe I will feel so bad I won't go there and do it again. We have to solve it first. Or, again, we point at other people and say, um, those people, if they would just get their act together, um, then my life would not be um, in so much hurt. We might think that I just need to be, if I can be kind enough to myself and accept myself exactly the way I am, I'm eventually going to feel better um, and the feelings are going to go away. And subconsciously, which we won't, we, none of us actually consciously think this, but we do, that if we eat enough, if we drink enough, if we have enough fun, then those things are just eventually going to dissipate. And we will be distracted and numb enough so that it won't matter anymore. But so David is molding us against those things. He is leading us back to the source. He is leading us back to the true place, the true source of life, which is him and him alone. And what does that do for us? Um, In the first place, we're going to see that actually leads us into a pretty vulnerable circumstance. That when we recognize that fact that we are actually living our lives before a true and a just and a holy God and that he is the source of this hurt that we are feeling, um, it is going to take us into a deep and a hurtful place. Um, in some way. This is the second point. He's leading us, starting at God as a source and leading right through the depth of our hurt. If we skip down and look at this, just look at these words, what David says. He says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief and it grows weak because of all my foes. What this is a picture of, and I don't think this is just description, I think there is a consequence of where he started into how he got here, that this is a picture of somebody who has come to recognize that outside of his relational connection with God as the source, he has no safety net. He is living a life with no safety net outside of his relational connection with God. Uh, we talk about safety net uh, culturally. This is one of the debates we have, a social safety net with politics and government. Is it, you know, is this something that um, you know, the government does, and if we're at our worst, um, we're bankrupt, whatever, then, then we have something we can depend on. Is it family? You know, is it church? Is it those kinds of things? We know what a safety net is. This is something that we actually talk about and think about all the time. But this is something far deeper than that. It's far deeper than just our social well-being. This is actually a picture of life that is bringing us relationally, uh, morally. Um, the very meaning of our existence is at stake here outside of our relational connection with God. And you see here in, in verse 5 where he's, he is using this to appeal to God, but he's recognizing, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? That there's just a bleak um, nothingness if he is left here um, on his own. It leads to a deep, deep, dark situation. And I want to say that not all of us might feel that way. Some of us might. Uh, If you are or have ever struggled with addiction, you kind of know what it is like um, to say over and over and over again, 
I am a waste of a person. I keep doing this again and again and again, and I hate it. How long, O Lord, will you leave me here? Who, what good is this doing? Um, Me, here in life. Some of us might feel that way. Some of us might feel just the tremendous pressure of guilt uh, that is consuming our lives and that we lay in bed um, at night and we just can't shake it. Uh, just the realities of broken trust, the realities of the consequences of those things. We, might, we very well might feel that way. Uh, not all of us will feel that way. I think every single person in this room knows um, just what it's like to lay in bed at night and to rehearse through all of the conversations that happen during the day uh, when you yelled at your kids and just sit there and obsessively run through what you know, the trajectory their life is inevitably going to go on uh, because of that. Um, in the worst-case scenarios, uh, we run through the things that we said out loud in a social context that maybe we shouldn't have, uh, the time we picked a fight because we were defensive and we hurt people, um, even though if we were in our sane mind, maybe we wouldn't do that. We run through these things because we feel the hurt. There's big hurt and there's little hurt. The, the hurt and the consequences of our sin, they hurt and they can keep us up at night. And so I think that there is a, a lot that we can relate to. And it asks us, what is our safety net? I mean, Laura and I joke, one of ours is the counseling fund. Um, is one of the safety nets for our kids. But then that leads to the question, well, we might have some magic counselors in here, but how much is too much where uh, it is not going to be solvable? You know, when our work ethic uh, can't solve it anymore, there's no safety net. Then uh, is that a legitimate safety net or not? But what does David do as the pivot in taking him journeying through those deep, dark places and asking that question, what is the real safety net that our life is dependent upon? What does he appeal to in verse 4? Is the simplest and most basic thing. Turn, O Lord, and deliver deliver my life and save me for the sake of your steadfast love. David is leading us to see That in the depths and the darkness, however deep we can find ourselves and where we can go. That in doing that, in being led to see that, then we are confronted with this reality that we actually have one. We have one true safety net. And that is the steadfast love of God. And why would David appeal to this? Sitting in David's seat then he has seen circumstances at work. He has seen when the Ark of the Covenant was taken away from Israel because of their own boneheadedness and sin and how in a supernatural way it was brought back, having nothing to do with Israel itself, but the steadfast love of God, preserving his people, preserving his nation as he has promised. He would have thought back about the chaos of the time of Judges, when again and again and again God raised people up and his presence was there even still and that this people even existed at the end of that chaos. He would have thought about the golden calf after coming out of the Red Sea when the people built an idol against God and through that God actually gave them 
the law and the sacrificial system, the means by which the people of Israel could be near him and could live in life with him. He would have thought about the Exodus and he would have thought about Genesis uh, chapter 3 where God would say that there will be hurt to me at some point because of what Adam and Eve done, has done. But at the end of the day, because of my steadfast love, I am going to absorb that hurt onto myself and I am going to make it right. How do you know that God's steadfast love is actually a safety net that is worth, that is worthy of you and where you are? Because it has been proved. You think about relationally, how do you know that, somebody, that a relationship with somebody is actually strong enough to withstand um, hurt and brokenness in it? I think because they've been proved time and time again. You know this of your friends. Those deepest, closest friends because they have been proven. They have been put to the test and they have been hurt and they have come out on the other side. And David would have seen this. He was looking back at how God had proven himself to Israel. But of course we know that this is also looking forward to the ultimate proof. And this is why we read John chapter 12 in a second ago is when Jesus came and he said that his soul like David. He uses these words. It was deeply troubled. And yet, he did not come in order to let that pass away. He came so that he could lay his life down for you and me. And the reason, even if it is your own fault and you are bearing the consequences of your own sin, you know that you actually have a safety net that is worthy. It is because in God's steadfast love, He has given you proof on the cross and that he was willing to be crushed for your sake so that he could invite you in. This whole story of the Bible that we have and why we even do this thing every week is because again and again and again, he is proving to you that his steadfast love is enough. And so when you go before him, What is he characterized by? Is he the kind of God that looks at you and says, you have made your bed, so you're going to have to lay in it. I love you, but there's nothing I can do. That is not the same God that is depicted in the Bible. There are times he allows us to hurt. There are times when there are consequences. But because of Jesus... All of those are wrapped up inside of him into his story. And that even those things become the means through which he expresses his steadfast love to us. That his safety net is enough. And that is a reason, as we transition here to the last point, that there is a, an ability to allow our hearts to rejoice. Look at these last things that David says here. After this, verse 7, he makes an abrupt shift. And he says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. He doesn't just hear it, but he takes it in. He accepts my prayer. He accepts the pleading of my heart, even when it's my own fault. 
He takes that to him. He says, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. There is a promise of a great reversal. That the shame that he feels will eventually be brought into a complete reverse. Where even those that would talk about him and would bring shame upon him for what he has done, um, that the shame they are heaping would end up being shame that they would take upon themselves. And you can say, is this hypocritical of David? I think what's going on here is that there is a level of confidence that David is displaying. It is not taking a grace and then putting it upon somebody else that they can't have it. I think he has been welcomed back into the journey to walk in confidence, to love what is good and to hate what is evil. He is allowed to continue to enjoy what is good and to keep straining for it, knowing that he is part of a problem. But he is walking now in a different story. He is able to freely pray before God and to pour out his own hurt that might be his own fault and know that God cares. And God is not just leaving him there, but his steadfast love is poured out upon him abundantly. I think this is a really sweet journey for us all to walk on. It might be for us. Um, This might give us a reminder of just what uh, the effects of sin has on life, and maybe that would change how we relate to each other. Um, But God's steadfast love is enough. Nobody likes consequences. But the gospel was this upside-down thing, that even those can bring us to the thing, the kind of safety that our souls cling, or just yearn for, and they need, and where we can find rest. So I just want to invite us all this week to be willing to go on this journey, uh, to be willing to look into our own lives honestly, uh, to be able to reflect, to even ask ourselves where is that vulnerability and hurt that we're feeling, and sit in it, truthfully, and see it for what it actually is. Because the promise is that if you will do that, then you will meet Jesus there at the same time. And you will have a new kind of joy and confidence um, that you can walk in from that point. Let's pray together. Father, have mercy on us as sinners. Have mercy on our feeble attempts to get rid of our own sin or to hide it, to think that we can wallow in misery and we can take care of ourselves. Would you pull us out of those places? Would you surround us with your steadfast love? Uh, that we might rejoice and that we might be able to praise you and we might be able to share how good your steadfast love is with those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.